Hello, I'm Thomas Avihana, Stratfor Global Security Analyst at Rain. This podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, Rain's premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Sign up for the free Stratfor newsletter at worldview.stratfor.com. Germany is one of the first states to really recognize the importance of the railroad for military affairs. The two great powers that emerge in the late 19th and early 20th century, Germany and the United States, both depend on the railroad. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series about geopolitics from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm your host, Roger Baker. When we think about classical geopolitics, Germany often emerges at the forefront. It was a contender for Mackinder's heartland power, a concept that continues to shape U.S. strategic thinking. And it was a place where geopolitical theory was co-opted by the state to justify aggressive expansion. And that tainted geopolitics as a field for some time. At the center of modern Europe, along the northern European plain, Germany has been an important playing field or element of European power relationships for centuries. The unification of the German Empire 150 years ago fundamentally altered the path of Europe and the world. I'm joined today by Dr. James Sheehan, Dickinson Professor in the Humanities, Emeritus, at Stanford University, and author of several books and monographs on German history. Jim, thank you for joining me to discuss the geopolitical and historical context of Germany. My pleasure. When we look at geopolitics, of course, Germany always plays this central role. And when we think about um, Mackinder's view of the world, uh, he saw this concept of a heartland power, something coming out of the center of the Eurasian steppes, being able to exert land power and therefore push back against maritime powers like the United Kingdom. And his his dictum that he came up with, uh, building off of an, an older one talking about maritime power, was who rules East Europe commands the heartland, who rules the heartland commands the world island, and who rules the world island commands the world. And of course, Germany ultimately plays a central role in here. Mackinder has Russia as a heartland power. He has Germany as a potential heartland power as we go through. Um, When we look at this today, Germany obviously has played this very, very important role in the 20th century. Um, Where do we really start to see Germany uh, as an entity emerge as a primary player in the balance of power in Europe? Well, that's a great question. And I think we start not with Germany, but with Prussia. Uh, Prussia is becomes a great power, the smallest and the weakest of the great powers, but becomes a great power in the late 18th century. It becomes the power that links the East and West, that creates uh, the political, the European society of states that lasts from the end of the 18th century down to the First World War. And it is only with that uh, power in the center of Europe and the concurrent emergence of Russia as a European power that creates that European system uh, that we think of as uh, central to 
19th and to some degree 20th century international history. Uh, the other thing that happens is that when Prussia, at the same time that Prussia emerges as a great power, uh, Europe becomes a, a society of sovereign states in a way that I think it hadn't before. And Prussia is also an, an important player in that and remains a player in that, uh, not only at, when it, as Prussia, but then after 1871, as you said, as the, uh, the center of a united German state. So we see really an integration of three different components here in what, what changes this role for Germany. We have an, an ideological or conceptual component, which is what is the state um, that's evolving in Europe at the time and, and that idea of state and empire and how that is changing. We have a geographic component of where Germany sits, um, as you see, changing in power balances. And then we have a technological component uh, that, that the Prussians pick up on in transportation infrastructure and new technologies that we'll later see emerge um, in the, the broader European warfare at the beginning of the, the, the 20th century. Um, how did the, the German states or Prussia take advantage of these, or how was it molded by these different forces? Well, let's take the first one first. Uh, that, that Prussia is in some ways the, the classical example of a modern state. Uh, it, is, it is when it begins its life, a, a collection of territories scattered about uh, Central Europe that are forged uh, in the course of the 18th century by the construction of a bureaucracy uh, and especially by the construction of an army. Uh, these are the components that, that turn Prussia from a, a secondary power uh, in the kind of Sweden, Palatinate, uh, Savoy category into one of the five great powers. So, so state-making is central to the German and uh, Prussian and German experience. And down to 1914, I think most German statesmen think of themselves as a state, uh, the First World War begins to shatter that, but I think of themselves, they think of themselves as a sovereign state uh, with um, an Im imperial aspirations, uh, but essentially as a, as a landlocked continental Euro European state. Um, this is under pressure of a variety of sorts to try to expand and move away from Europe. They're never quite able to, to integrate that into a either a military or a political strategy. It's one of the big problems that, that Germany before 1914 has, uh, but, um, but that's, where they, that's where they are. I think Germany's interesting as a connective between East and West, but also as a place where conflicting, competing energies and images coexist. And this is true geographically. I mean, I think from the very start, Germany is both a maritime state, uh, re reaches out up its great river systems, especially the Rhine, uh, into what becomes the Atlantic world. So it's a maritime state, and it's also a landlocked agricultural state uh, in the, tied to the east in a variety, in a variety of ways. 
there are lots of other examples of this, uh, Protestantism and Catholicism in, in the 16th century, uh, communism and, and democracy in the 20th. There are lots of places where the, the different aspects of the European experience find their, their juncture uh, on German soil. In that sense, Germany plays, um, because of that, that linkage or that interactive connection, Germany plays a role in uh, shaping and being a cauldron of different concepts and ideas in how they can be formed in their conflict and in their cooperation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the things that, that changes after 1940, 19, actually 1989, when, when this this uh, meeting Germany as meeting place begins to give way to the sense of Germany as really the, the, the center, the central player in a, in a different kind of, in a different kind of Europe. Uh, there are lots of different ways we can think about Germany as, as a meeting place. In some ways, the, the German political system down to 1914 is an odd mixture of, of democracy and authoritarianism. I, I know the, the, conventional view of Germany is as an authoritarian state. Uh, but in fact, Germany has some powerful democratic institutions. It's one of the most um, democratic suffrages in all of Europe, far beyond Britain, and not, not to mention the United States. Um, it has uh, some powerful representative institutions in both local and national level. Um, of course, it has a monarchy. Of course, the army plays a role. Of course, there's an authoritarian element. But the two coexist together uh, uneasily on, on often, but coexist nonetheless. In looking at military history, one of the key concepts is, is Prussia's ability to utilize rail to rapidly be able to move itself in other places. And we think of that connection between Germany and technology, both in the, at least in military technology and the Prussians. We see it in um, World War I. We see it in particular in World War II with certain types of technology facilitating uh, rapid movement of, of forces and things like the, the, the development of the dive bombers. Um, but we also see it, I guess, linking into uh, concepts today of that technological component still playing into the economic realm of how modern Germany interacts with its neighbors. Well, I think Germany's political, or Prussia's political prominence down to the middle of the 19th century is largely organizational. It has to do with organizing, arranging, being able to deploy and motivate uh, a successful army. The technology comes as Germany is one of the first states to really recognize the importance of the railroad for military affairs. In, in some ways, the, the two great powers that emerge uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, Germany and the United States, both depend on the railroad, that, that quintessential 19th century invention uh, in order to create a, a new kind of economic, social, and political system. Now, for Germany, the railroad is essential uh, because it does have spaces, it, it does has the problem of, of moving its troops. It faces the difficulty of enemies on the east and the west. Um, and Germany's great successes uh, in, the, in the wars of national unification uh, come from, um, partly from their, their infantry weapons, uh, but also from their ability to move their troops quickly 
you you can it doesn't take minute it take doesn't like long to see the enormous advantage of a railroad. You move your troops swiftly. They get where they're going. They're not exhausted by days, weeks on the march. Um, they come out. You've got you know, you're going to have to march from the railhead to the battle. But nonetheless, it, it is an extraordinary advantage. And if you can do that right, you get everybody there. You get their horses and their weapons and the men all in the same place at the same time, which is not a trivial matter. Um, it's a it's a great advantage, and this was the advantage the Germans had over the Austrians in '66 and over the French in in '70. And managing that logistics is that combination, as you noted, of the organizational capacity of the state plus the technological capacity. That's exactly right. Yeah, and it, it is it is really quite immense. When I when I used to lecture on this, I would always ask my students if they'd ever tried to arrange a dorm picnic. And then to multiply that by a couple of thousand and you begin to get the sense of what it's like to try to organize an army and get them where they're going, get them there on time and, and ready, to, ready to fight. Is, is modern Germany's um, technological or economic connectivity in the region related to this early component? Is it, is it I, I mean, geography is not dictatorial, but is it influenced by Germany's location, being on that river network, being in that area, and by the, the, the pools of labor and consumer markets in and around uh, the German homeland? Well, yes, I think it is. I mean, the, the, the ability of the Germans to take advantage of that technologically comes from a, a variety of other sources. But, but, but Germany has always been uh, in part, an, an urban, a collection of powerful, active urban communities, uh, especially in the West, along the Rhineland, cities like Frankfurt and, and Cologne, uh, up in the north, Hamburg. These are, are long-standing, commercially-oriented, outwardly-reaching urban communities. We think of Prussia, we think of Berlin and of Potsdam and of the, the landed estates in the East. That's also Germany. There's no doubt that the two belong together, but they're both there. And uh, the modern Germany down to the 20th century uh, faced the political, social, and economic problem of, of keeping them together and having them, having them coordinate and work together. Germany's technological capacity comes in part from its, its educational system, in part from the way in which it it developed ways of, uh, develop, of using technology, training technologists, training engineers, training people who were, who were good at that. And it also comes from the, the good fortune of geography of having some rich uh, coal and iron deposits, which by the way, when they got them in 1815, the Prussians didn't particularly want. Uh, they would have much preferred some of that great farmland uh, in the east and only reluctantly took the Rhineland and Westphalia, which becomes the, the heart of, of Germany's industrial and, and technological might, uh, only took that as a kind of consolation prize. When we think about the, the formation of the European Union, um, you know, from a, a broad strategic construct, part of that is to say, how do you uh, reduce that sense of vulnerability of a Germany that sits in an open space? How do you tighten the integration between, say, Germany uh, and France um, so that they work together? And ultimately, we get a European Union that in many ways, in the modern sense, 
um, is also about how do you absorb uh, German uh, industrial capacity, right, in, in the areas around Germany. And this seems to be a, a piece of why Germany remains in and why we don't see, for example, the repetition of the early 20th century pattern of a Germany that feels threatened and then ultimately acts militarily. With that economic dynamic and with just changes in the world system, um, in what ways are we seeing changes in the way in which Germany perceives its neighborhood and how Germans maybe perceive themselves within this European neighborhood? Okay, that, that, again, that's, a, that, that's another great question. Um, first of all, I think we have to remember that the Cold War created a kind of incubator in which the new Europe could be born and could thrive. Um, that one of the reasons why the Europeans were willing to accept, uh, first of all, a Germany that returns to the European, to the Western European community, and then a Germany that is rearmed, uh, enormous transformation within a very, very short period of time in the attitude not only of the French, but of the Belgians and the Dutch uh, and the British to, to the German case. So, so without the Cold War, without NATO, without the American presence, uh, that would not have happened. Or it certainly would not have happened the way, the way it did. So the development of a new kind of uh, European society of states, uh, much more willing to share institutions of some sorts, not of all, uh, economically bound together, essentially without real borders in the traditional sense, uh, all of that flows from this uh, original Cold War context in which it is originally formed. Then it develops a momentum of its own. Uh, which uh, really, in the course of it, reshapes uh, people's attitudes towards geopolitics, towards what it means to be a state. Uh, th th this is a, a silent revolution in many ways, uh, but it's a revolution that, that ranks with those greatest changes in, in world history that we, we should not lose sight of. I think one aspect of that is a changing attitude towards territory. Now, it's not to say that, that states don't still think of themselves as uh, bounded political spaces. But the importance of territory shifts for lots of different reasons. Uh, one, it's because of that, another silent revolution that we should pay more attention to. The, the disappearance of agriculture as a powerful force uh, in economies. is something that needs to be subsidized and sustained. So that um, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, a third at least of the German workforce was agricultural. Now it's what, two, three, four percent. So um, this, this shrinkage of agriculture, um, as it becomes more productive, but in some important ways, less central to, to what its state must think about when it thinks about security is one aspect of this. But I think it goes, I think it goes beyond that. It goes into a, a realm of political culture. Uh, right after the, the Second World War, as Germany began, to, as West Germany began to emerge uh, as an independent or quasi-independent state, there used to be maps uh, in the, the, that were 
common in every German schoolroom and atlas. And these maps would show West Germany, and then they would show an area to the east that was called the Soviet occupation zone. Uh, and that was, and then there was on this map, superimposed on this map, uh, the Germany of 1914, sometimes the Germany of 1939, uh, which would be there as a kind of after image on the, on the political retina. Uh, and people would think about returning to that Germany. It, was a, it would have been a very dangerous thing for a German politician to say, uh, we're never getting this back. This Germany you see outlined on your map, this ghost Germany, is never going to come back to life. Uh, part of the transformation of German geopolitics after 1949 is the, the waning of this image. And even though, even when people continued to pay lip service to it, the fact is that by the 1960s, certainly by the 1970s, most West Germans, very few exceptions, don't really care much uh, about what had been the Germany of their fathers and their grandfathers. They're quite happy with West Germany. They're quite happy with their vacations in uh, Spain and on Mallorca and in Italy. They're quite happy with their transfer student status in the United States. They're not really thinking about regaining uh, Breslau and uh, Königsberg and, and so forth. The place one saw this shift most dramatically, and I was there for this, was the debate in 1990-91 where the new capital should be. Should it stay in Bonn or should it move to Berlin? Uh, and of course, as we know in the end, Berlin won, but not overwhelmingly. Most of the people I knew, unlike myself, I have to say, were in favor of staying in Bonn. Bonn had, had, and of course, this is the West. This is the Rhineland. This is, this is not the Germany that Bismarck created. This is a very different kind of Germany. This is, this is in some ways, Adenauer's Germany. So um, it's a shift. And as I said, it, it's, it's hard to overestimate the importance of this shift in the way uh, Germans thought about their state and about themselves, and about their place in Europe. Not everybody does this. There is, uh, as we know now, about a 10% uh, movement of, of more traditional nationalists. Uh, but um, it is, I think, the overwhelming consensus uh, that there's this, a very different kind of Germany with, with a very different set of problems, uh, but a very different future. Not as they recognize painfully, not, however, with a different past. I think it's a very important point that you raise here that um, the perception of geography can change even if the geography itself doesn't fundamentally change. And that becomes a, a really um, potent concept as we think about uh, leaning toward the future. How do uh, democratic countries and even non-democratic countries uh, utilize these ideas of history, of territory, of space, uh, and how are they shaped by their own populations and their own views? Well, I think that's right. And I, and I do think uh, 
in parts of the world, not everywhere as we know, but in parts of the world, that old uh, emotional attachment to national territory uh, has, has not disappeared, but has certainly significantly diminished. I mean, one thinks about when, when Germany annexed uh, Alsace and Lorraine, Alsace and Lorraine, which the French believed to be their territory. Um, the statue of Strasbourg in uh, the Place de Concorde in Paris was draped in black. Everybody who drove by it was reminded uh, that they had lost these provinces. And, and while I don't think we should overestimate the degree to which Germans, I mean, Frenchmen, um, were compulsively committed to getting them back. Uh, they were there, and it was something people thought about. Um, and there are parts of the world, the Golan Heights, uh, parts of Azerbaijan, uh, maybe Taiwan. Uh, there are parts of the world where this is still, to some extent, true. Uh, but I don't think it's true in Germany. Well, I know we could go on for, for much longer on this, but I think we're pushing our time, and... Uh... Uh, I want to thank you, Jim, for taking this time to discuss these topics with us. Well, my pleasure. It's always always interesting to think about these things. We've been speaking today with Dr. James Sheehan, Dickinson Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University. Stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments by signing up for our free newsletter. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.